Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Stranger Things staff writer and story editor, Kate Tree Fry. When she was a kid growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, Kate says she was an obsessive reader and writer. That those two things have always been part of who she is. The need to express herself and to leave a mark was imprinted on her at a young age, when her parents took her to Italy and she saw all the timeless pieces of art. From that point on, she was interested in leaving a legacy. Although the specifics of that idea has changed throughout her life, especially after the birth of her daughter, it remains just as important now as it did then. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Carly Mortensen, and Alaska Surf Adventure. Thank you to all the Crude Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep this podcast alive. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Kate Tree Fry. It's no surprise that the road to Hollywood success is turbulent. It's something many pursue, but very few achieve. For those few, it usually comes in the form of the elusive big break. Such was the case with Kate. After years of pursuing a career in show business and working odd jobs to make ends meet, she landed an interview with the Duffer Brothers, the creators of Stranger Things. This opportunity didn't just come out of nowhere, though. It was the culmination of years of hard work and false starts and bad meetings and rejection letters. But that's what she realized separates the successful and the unsuccessful in Hollywood. The ability to endure the hardships and not give up. So here she is, Kate Tree Fry. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. We are rocking and rolling. Exciting. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. You're in LA, right? I am. I am in I'm in actual Hollywood. How is it? Uh just sunny and sick every day? Uh I don't know. I mean, it's on fire right now, so it's it's kind of a bummer. But um it's okay. I mean it's it's got its own, its ups and downs. For sure, just like anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I go back to Alaska probably like twice a year, and I'm always excited to come visit. What do you do when you come back to Alaska? Um, well, my husband, who's also from Alaska, actually, sidebar, I don't know if this is going to go on the show, but I think you know him. Do you know Ben Belay? I do. So my one of my really good friends is Sebastian Garber. Uh-huh. And... Um, you guys all went to school together, and I just have such a crap memory when it comes to to school because I was in and out of school just doing the snowboarding thing. Mm-hmm. And I do remember Ben's name. So, yes, I do. I probably just need to see a picture, and I'm like, yeah, that, I know him. Yeah, he's, like, super hot. He has green <laughs> eyes. He's, like, a really good father. He has, like, a beautiful smile. I knew it. Yeah, no, I know exactly who he is. <laughs> I know, right? His skin is like golden and he's like so funny. Um, Anyway, uh, I didn't actually go to high school with him. I was at Diamond and he was at service. And then we like randomly met at a party in New York later. Um, But uh, yes, wait, why are we talking about this? Oh, what do I do when I come back to Alaska? Um, His parents have a house out at Big Lake. So my family has all moved out of Alaska, but I go back there usually once in the summer and once in the winter and uh, hang out on Big Lake and it's amazing. And I guess to take it a little further back, mm-hmm. you went to Athenium, right? Yeah. Which was yep. which was a Socratic 
Method Seminar School. Yeah, that's weird. How do you know that? I I know things. Oh, okay. It's creepy. <laughs> no, um, my my good friend uh, Clayton Linden and his sister Color Linden um, also went there. Oh, I remember Color. Yeah. Fuck, I haven't thought about her in forever. So they're the ones who kind of turned me on to this. They were like, you need to hit up Kate. Awesome. Gosh, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I went there for like sixth and seventh grade or something, and then I got expelled, actually. No way. For what? Smoking the weed <laughs> uh, with the principal's daughter. And um, guess who didn't get in trouble? So Was it the principal's daughter? It sure was, Cody. It sure was. Um, yeah, so I got kicked out of there and then I went to Golden View, uh, for eighth grade. And then I went to Diamond until I was a senior and then I went to APU. So I, it never really took, I was really all over the place. Okay. So to drop into these interview questions. Yeah, let's do it. So I was doing my research and writing questions for you and I realized that you don't really have social media. Mm -mm, Nope. Off the grid. Is there a reason for that or a philosophy behind it? Or is it just a byproduct of having a busy schedule? It's all of these things. I don't know. Like, I feel like technology is um, like evolving way faster than we are. And I don't think that we have yet started. This is going to make me sound like a fucking cuckoo bird. But I don't think <laughs> that we have yet started to understand the ramifications of all of this online socializing. And, um, and I'm just kind of sitting it out, waiting to see what happens. Uh, and I'm also like doing that with my kid, um, where it's just like, I don't know, maybe I'm old fashioned. I'm like a curmudgeon, but like, it gives me the creeps a little bit. And I don't think that anyone, you know, young should like have their face out there without like having any autonomy or control over that. So, um, I'm like off. Yeah. I'm like off the grid. I, uh, I'm also very busy and I also was just like naturally very bad at all of it. Like I was like around for my space and like my space <laughs> made sense to me. <laughs> and then as soon as it started to become like Instagram and like Twitter, I was like, I don't understand. I'm just like showing pictures. Like I don't even take pictures. Like I'm not a photographer. And then with Twitter, I was like, why I don't, this word limit does not suit me and I have nothing to say. And who am I even talking to? So that's like, that's who I am. And, uh, that's why I'm not around. Also, once I got on to stranger things, um, there's a lot of like, it's great. And I love the fans and I love the like popularity of the show, but it's also like nice to have like a filter of, you know, I don't, I'm not any more well-known than I want to be. Like, you know, people can't find me and hit me up. I mean, like, it's sweet. It's usually just people sending, like, kids sending, like, audition tapes and stuff. But it's just, like, I'm not the person to help you with that. And, like, I don't know what to tell you. But this audition is adorable. (laughs) So it's easier just to kind of tap out. Yeah, kind of tap out. Um, I just, like, I like to be focused on real things like I'm not a good hype man uh, like my manager would tell you like I just like to do work and I don't like to promote and I don't like to advertise I don't like to brag which is uh probably seems like bullshit because I'm basically doing this to just brag but um yeah that's the it's that combination I guess You know, it seems very old school. I mean, I'm actually a big fan of what you do or what you're doing with social media by not having it because I long for the day that I don't have to have social media. Yeah. But it is it is very old school in that um, you only do the interviews you want to. Yes. You only are out there as much as you want to be. Yeah, I think you have more control um, of your exposure, you know, and um, I also just find like everyone has like their own perspective about it. But for me, it's just a huge time waster. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I don't have time. Like I try to like not be on any of it as much as possible because um, it's just like, I've, you know, I used to have it. I used to like be on 
Facebook or whatever. Um, and I still check it every once in a while, but every time I do, you know, you know what it is. It's the same thing. You're like, Oh, I got to check this thing. Like your messages from you. And then all of a sudden I'm like Googling, you know, tiger tasker. Like, what's that guy up to? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm deep in it. Like two hours later, I'm like, I got to get out of here. What, what the hell just happened? Since you've, uh, left the social media scene, what have you realized that you do more of now? Um, I look at people more. I pay attention more. Like I make a big like point of not like taking out my phone when I'm like standing in line for stuff. Um, I think that there's like a big um, movement to like uh, constant stimulation that I am like always battling myself and I want to like set a good example for my kid and life and going forward and saying like, it's okay to like not be scrolling through something. Like you don't have to be multitasking. You can just like be somewhere and you can look at people and you can like look around you and see the world around you. Um, so like, I guess being bored, like being getting comfortable again with being like a little bit bored, I think is important. I think it's kind of important. It sounds like a weird thing, but, um, there's, uh, yeah, there's that. I read, like, I read books. Like, I actually read books now at night instead of just, like, staring at the horrible news until I pass out into nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it's just, like, I got, I have a, you know, my kid turned one, like, five days ago. Like, I, <laughs> it's a, and it's, it's a luxury to sit down and, like, zone out and, like, read, you know, deadline or whatever for 10 minutes. You know, I think like you were saying, it helps you be more present. Yes. You know, you you're more present in conversations. I, uh, I I've used this example a few times during the podcast, but doing these weekly conversations where I'm preparing for them and I'm I'm really trying to come up with thoughtful questions and researching the guests, um, they have helped me in my real life. And I'm the type of person now, especially when I'm in public. I really try not to pull out my phone as often as I used to. Mm-hmm. And so kind of a happy byproduct of the podcast and kind of trying to stay away from my phone is, yeah, looking people in the eyes and, and walking through the grocery store and actually looking at people mm-hmm. and smiling. And yeah, it's old school. <laughs> it is. It is old school. And I really like it. Um, you know, I I don't know. I'm as guilty as anyone of doing that thing. Like I get the itch, like whatever dopamine rewiring, like, you know, dystopian bullshit that has happened to us. Like I get the itch like anyone else when I have like 10 seconds at a stoplight and I'm driving to be like, Ooh, like, I wonder, I wonder if NPR has updated their homepage in the last five seconds, you know? And it's like, (laughs) I don't why, like, I don't care. Like, it's going to be like, you know, another article about the impeachment process, which, you know, nothing is happening right now. Like, it's fine. But, um, yeah, it's like a pra- it's it's a, something I have to practice resisting all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of your absence on social media, but there's surprisingly very little about your personal life online. Yeah, which is important to me. You already mentioned you were born in Anchorage, Alaska. Yes. What were you like as a kid? As a kid? Like, what What are we talking? Are we talking like eight? Are we talking like 15? You know, I guess what I'm trying to establish here is like, how, maybe how did you, how did you get from where you were as a kid in Anchorage, Alaska, which Alaska is very much like annexed from the rest of the world mm-hmm. to where you are now, which is working on arguably one of the biggest shows in the world. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was a like introverted, very odd, like tomboy child who like spent a lot of time in the woods. I went to Polaris when I was a kid. Um, I don't know if Polaris is still around, but it is. Yeah, yeah. So I took like a lot of classes about rainbows, um, <laughs> like whole intensives, like about rainbows. I took like four. Um, I wasn't like cool. I was very androgynous. I feel like if I was a kid today, people would be like, oh, like, is this child transitioning? Like I was fully 
I grew up with brothers and I like really didn't see the value in being a girl and just like kind of was that person. And, um, and so I, uh, yeah, I was like a thoughtful kid, but I think from a pretty young age, I was sort of obsessed with the idea of leaving a mark. Um, my parents took me abroad when I was young to like Italy and I saw all of these timeless like works of art and I remember having this kind of like epiphany when I was like 10 maybe um being in some chapel being like oh I really need (laughs) this is so weird for a 10 year old but I was like the idea of like legacy is kind of important to me like I want to be like make some impact and be known in some way um and I was like an obsessive reader uh and writer like from a really early age Um, so that was always kind of like part of my DNA. And then, um, I left, I was a, like very difficult, (laughs) I mean, spectrum teenager. I was a teenager. I was like any other teenager. I was a monster. (laughs) Sure. And, um, and then I went to, uh, I left Alaska to go to school in Colorado for like two years. I went to Colorado college, which is a very cool, good school in a really, terrible place. Um, and I got really bored of being there and went. I ended up in New York and once I got to New York, I I felt like I like had found my speed, like the speed that New York moves at is like, I think like the appropriate speed for humans in life. (laughs) Um, and which is not the same speed in LA. So there's tension there. But, um, from there I, I was an English major and I knew I wanted to write. I always thought I was going to write novels, um, fiction. And then I started taking a couple of like film and screenwriting classes in New York. And, um, and then like on a, I don't know, my future husband was really into film and he was doing it. And I was in a comedy group and we were like making short films, which Technically, you could probably find on the internet, but I hope that you don't because they are very bad. <laughs> um, and we I was just kind of doing that. And uh, we all, me, uh, Ben Belay and Joe Hardesty, all moved out to Los Angeles together to try to, like, make it in showbiz. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that's like the short and dirty, I guess, version of how I ended up here uh, trying, trying to do the screenwriting life out in LA. So you're in LA. I'm in LA. How did you get the opportunity to write on Stranger Things? Well, I, um, I toiled in anonymity for like eight years or something or six. I don't know. I'm bad at math and I have no (laughs) sense of time. Like LA has no seasons. So it's like, I feel like I got here like this morning and it's just like the longest day. Um, but I, uh, I got out here, I wrote a script. My first script got like attention. It was on this thing called the blacklist, which is like a big deal out here, but no one anywhere else cares about it which is um correct and uh I was like my first script was like really personal about obsessive compulsive disorder and it was called pure o and it was like people were really excited about it I got uh, a manager I got agents I was like oh my god like I did it I like first script I've been here for like a year or whatever a couple years and I just nailed it Mm -hmm. like this is amazing and, um, and then I didn't get work for like five years <laughs> because it doesn't actually mean anything. That's pretty typical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You have to like be willing to, I think more than anything, what separates like the successful from the unsuccessful in LA is just, um, an ability to just take, just take it, <laughs> just take it for a really long time mm-hmm. and just not give up. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I kept writing. I worked like every job there is. Like I did landscaping. I made snow cones for rich kids' birthday parties. I worked at a bakery. I like worked at a coffee shop. Like I bartended. Like I don't even, like I did art department. I built props. Like I, I don't even, you know, I did all kinds of shit. Um, 
I was an assistant, uh, a development assistant in a production company. Um, and all the time I like kept writing and, um, I was actually like, I had a series of really bad meetings, um, like epically bad meetings. Actually, this movie that just came out, Hustlers, I don't know. Did you see that? The one with Jennifer Lopez? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Well, I pitched on that movie like, I don't know, four or five years ago or something with Adam McKay, who I'd never met before. And I like walked in this room with like an Adam McKay, who's like, I don't know if you know this, but he's like 11 feet tall <laughs> and he was wearing like all corduroy. He had like a corduroy suit on and he was like this giant corduroy like monolith <laughs> in this like room of like other like other angry people. And um, I was supposed to pitch on Hustlers, which it, the plot is, you know, based on this true story of these strippers that drug these guys and steal all of their money. But the meeting was set on this Monday, and the Monday it was set on, I went in there, and it was the day after the Pulse nightclub shooting. And it was terrible. It was like everyone was like very upset, myself included. And we talked about that and like gun violence for like 10 minutes. And then they were like, okay, go ahead. Uh, pitch your show or pitch your movie or whatever. And I just bombed like no one has ever bombed like this in the history of fucking show business. Like it was so bad. It was so bad that my manager called me afterwards and he was like, do you want me to tell you the truth? And I was like, no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was like, it was sucked, you know, like I was like, I'm just not cut out for this. I don't think I can do this anymore. So I actually went back to, um, I went like my husband and I, we like hung out in New York for a little while. I did bartending more. And then we were actually in Alaska. I was at Big Lake and I was like having a serious discussion with him being like, it's not working. Like we are 28 or 29 or something and haven't made any money like doing this. I think grand total writing screenplays, I made like 30 grand on this like Selena Gomez movie that never happened. And then, um, and I was like, I don't know, maybe we got to do something else. My backup plan, which is a terrible backup plan was maybe we'll open like a bear's tooth, like movie pub, which is like super expensive and impossible and hard. <laughs> but I was like, maybe we'll just do that. Um, and then the next day my manager called and he was like, Oh, have you seen the trailer for stranger things? And I was like, yeah, it looks awesome. And all the time when I'm saying this, that I was like, it's time to give up. I was writing a new script like at the same time mm -hmm. because it's like a compulsive thing. So I was like, yeah, I saw it. It's like this thing that I'm working on actually. And he was like, well, the show creators want to like interview you over Skype. And I was like, all right, fine. So I went like skinny dipping in the lake and then I like had a beer and then I was like, oh, it's time for my interview. So I like went on Skype and Skyped with the Duffer brothers and I was like really mean. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like really grouchy and like, I knew I wasn't going to get it. And so I was just like, you know, uh, I was like, it's cool that you guys, um, you know, it seems like what you're doing is cool. And they're like, Oh, like how's your writing process? Like what's your process? And I was like, there is no process. Writing is a hellscape. And show business is a fucking joke. And like, it was like really like dark. And they were like, yes, yes, we want to hire you. <laughs> we want this. So um, they hired me and I flew out back to LA like the next day. And I slept on Joe Hardesty's couch for like the first two months I was back because we had given up. We had like moved out of LA. We had no house. I had no place to live. But I like all of a sudden was working on a show that hadn't come out yet. And then I think like two months into the job, uh, the show came out and it was like, all of a sudden I was like, oh fuck, <laughs> there's been a mistake. <laughs> it's been like a miss, like a, a mix up or something because this show is like gigantic and I've never written for TV before. I've never been in a writer's room. I've never written a pilot. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, but it was awesome. So it was pretty literally uh, an overnight success for you it okay yes but also like that's if you don't count the like seven years that came before that mm -hmm. and they ended up finding me because 
of that first script that I wrote. That was the script that they read that um, they got from some guy that I went on a meeting with like five years earlier. Um, and so it's like, yes, it was an overnight success, but with like, you know, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all at once. And I think that is, happens a lot out here. It's not a typical path. You know, you spend a lot of time like going home to your parents for Christmas and being like embarrassed and like struggling and like defensive. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, fuck you. (laughs) Check me out. I did it. No, I think that's great. I I actually, oddly enough, was talking to a friend the other day about this exact thing where you you struggle and you kind of trudge through the process and it isn't till kind of talent meets opportunity yeah. that you you finally get to that that end goal point. Yeah, exactly. You just have to like keep knocking on the door forever. And then the door finally opens and everyone's like, oh my God, there you are. Like, like as if it was meant to be. Like, it's like, you know, it seems so lucky, but when you think about it, it's like, yeah, I've been, you know, I spent a lot of time grinding, um, you know, and like not getting anywhere. So it seemed. So Stranger Things obviously has an 80s horror sci-fi vibe to it. Mm -hmm. Did you watch a lot of horror or sci-fi growing up? I did. Um, I I really loved... Um, and sorry if I just switched on you right there. No, that's okay. I really loved um, like B, C, D horror movies. Like I liked shit that was like not scary. Like I loved like... I watched all the Hellraiser movies like in a row. Like me, my friends and I used to do these movie-a-thons where we would just watch movies like without sleeping for like two days you know Mm -hmm. like um and we would have a theme like all the hellraiser movies are like all the nightmare on elm street movies are like you know like and each sequel gets like more and more insane until you're at like jason 10 and like it's in space and you're just like (laughs) this is amazing like how did we get here um like for the first jason wasn't even really in the first jason you know the first friday the 13th yeah um so, yeah, I like, I always had like a special place in my heart for like obscure, you know, like kind of random, low budget horror. Um, and I always liked scaring myself. Um, and I always liked, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm like, I'm lowbrow. I'm not like a, I've soup, you know, I'm not, I haven't seen all the classics. I don't love like really abstract, like slow, like, I haven't even seen Suspiria. This is going to make me sound like such a monster. But, like, I love Chud, you know? Like, that's, like, what I grew up on is, like, like fun trash. Um, and so... Cannibalistic humanoid underground... Dwellers. Dwellers. There yeah, we go. Yeah. Exactly. That movie's unbelievable. It's so good. Um, it's, so, it's so fun. Have you seen Street Trash? No. Street Trash is great. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm making a note. So, yeah, I watched a ton of that stuff um, as a kid. And I was traumatized like everyone else of our generation by, um, you know, Alien. And It obviously was like, I think I saw It when I was like seven or something. And um, it like ruined my life slash got me this job. So, you know, two sides of that coin. So what do you think makes the best, most effective sci-fi or horror? Um, Now, personally, like I... Um, I love sci-fi because, and horror, because it allows you to talk about really serious, um, like heady psychological stuff, um, mm-hmm. but Trojan horse it in a packaging that people will green light pay for and then go see. Um, so I like it as a way of disguising, like, you know, I'm really interested in, psychological stuff I'm really interested in anxiety and depression and you know now I'm really interested in like postpartum and stuff and I love the idea that you can kind of find the right metaphor and wrap it up in that and um and then like give it to people for them to figure out and like connect with um like you know in a sneaky way Mm -hmm. Rod Serling did a lot of that with Twilight Zone Mm -hmm. exactly Okay, so 
can you take me through a typical day as a staff writer and story editor on Stranger Things? Um, sure. I mean, it's super boring, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we start, so we write out of a house in like the Hollywood Hills. Um, and it's me, Caitlin Schneiderhand, Paul Dichter, Curtis Gwynn, that's the writer's room. And then the Duffer brothers, uh, Matt and Ross, who are there, um, when they're not, you know, running the rest of the world. Um, and we come in, there's a lot of dogs in the writer's room. It's like four dogs. So there's like four people and four dogs. And, uh, oh man, I don't know. I like eat a bunch of muesli and like get a pile of snacks. And then we, depending on where, where we are in the season, that determines like the day. But I mean, like you just, um, you know, like when we're, breaking the outline for the whole season we talk about what themes we want to explore what we want the tone to be what movies we're referencing um like big story beats uh but I mean it's like it's just like nine hours or ten hours or whatever of just like basically problem solving plot um trying to nail down character arcs uh and then like going on random tangents of like making fun of stuff we think sucks <laughs> like uh what was the last thing and getting in arguments about like what movies are good and what movies are bad like I'm alone in the room because like I love what lies beneath and I think it's awesome mm -hmm. and uh everyone else thinks I'm insane uh so like I've definitely wasted a lot of time defending what lies beneath <laughs> and I feel like I should get some kind of recognition for that uh, but everyone has, like, their what lies beneath. Um, so, anyway, yeah. I mean, it's just, like, basically four people at a big table and a bunch of dogs running around just, like, going through storylines, trying to figure out awesome shit while telling this, like, larger story um, and not making any of it seem... Like, trying to walk the line of, like, fun and scary and, like convenient and you know all of this stuff so why do you guys talk about older movies are you guys maybe trying to extract some different themes and apply it to what you guys are doing um yeah i mean because it's set in the 80s you know like we like to kind of go back to whatever year we're um writing in like this year is 1986 so we like go back to that era we talk about what was happening you know it was chernobyl um and, uh, you know, we watch movies like that came out that year, um, and try to like, kind of like rediscover like the national temperature, the global temperature, like what people were talking about, what people were afraid of. Um, you know, season three, it was like a lot of body horror, paranoia in, you know, later in the eighties, it became, you know, the slasher genre was kind of like came to a head and, you know, there was a lot of satanic panic. Um, so like we try are trying to tap into like what was happening then, but also like we are always referring back to our favorite movies and the way that they did things, you know, that stuck with us, like certain sequences or, or um, you know, ways that character shifts were um, articulated. Like we absolutely are robbing from our our heroes like all the time and I think everybody does that and it's just you know how proudly you wear that on your sleeve um and we're pretty proud have you found that people nowadays are afraid of the same things or similar things as they were back then um it's an interesting question um yeah I mean I think there's like obviously the really primal fears of, um, technology, the future, um, the government, I think, you know, in the eighties, there was like a lot of paranoia, like about the government and what they're doing and what, um, what they're telling us <laughs> and what they're keeping from us. Mm -hmm. And I think that now probably more than ever, there's a, uh, mistrust, um, and a paranoia about, you know, the institutions that we think should be taking care of us. 
and their relationships with foreign powers. And that's a lot of, you know, the like, as Stranger Things has like grown into like a more global show, um, you know, we talk a little bit about that, but mostly, you know, it's, um, the show will always be like a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think teenagers are teenagers, whether it's, you know, the 1500s or the 1980s or now, like everybody is afraid of who they are, who they're becoming, how much control they have over that. Um, you know, the push and pull of like wanting to be taken care of and needing to assert independence. Um, the idea of people telling you what you're supposed to be or what you should be and the idea of like kind of starting to see like maybe who you are inside. Mm -hmm. I know that's all like very cliche, but I mean, that's, that's, um, it's true. It's the, it's the sandbox that we're playing in. And I think that sci-fi has always been great like that. I brought up Rod Serling before Mm -hmm. and what he was doing was talking about really, really difficult social issues through the lens of uh, sci-fi elements. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, that sounds exactly like what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and like, I I mean, arguably our supposed generations, um, Rod Serling being Jordan Peele has been doing the exact same thing, which I think has resonated with people so much for that exact reason, because it's, it is fun. It is entertaining. And like, one of the things I, I like working on, about working on Stranger Things is, you know, it's like people kind of write it off as like a show for kids. And like part of that is true, but I am proud of that, the part of the show that um, respects the audience and strives to entertain the audience um, while telling, you know, whatever story that we're telling. Um, And I I like appreciated that about Get Out. It stands on its own as a piece of entertainment and it stands on its own as a piece of social commentary. And I think that's kind of like the golden mean that we're all striving to get to. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I was trying to look for this one. Um, it's this one Stephen King. Oh, man. They say you want to see a dead body uh-huh, from um, from Stand By Me. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Stand By Me was uh, could be seen as a kid story, you know, but they were talking about some real stuff. Yeah, which I love, and um, I wish that there. I, I mean, there is very much more of now. But when the you know the Duffers were out pitching Stranger Things, there was this prevailing um, opinion in Hollywood that like, if you want to tell a story starring kids, like it needs to be a kids' story. And um, I don't think that obviously that's not. True. I mean, clearly mm-hmm. that is not true. Um, but yeah, I mean. Uh, Stand By Me is a huge, huge influence for that reason. So do you have a character on the show that you write for or do all the writers help write all the characters? We all write all the characters. I think we all like have our favorites um, who are kind of like our babies. Um, But yeah, everyone, you know, helps break the entire season and the character arcs. And then, you know, each of us writes an episode. So, um, it's a, it's a collab. Who are your babies? I would love to use this opportunity to go on the record as saying, um, I loved Steve, like before it was cool to love Steve. (laughs) Like in season one, when Steve was like bad and he like spray painted bad stuff about Nancy and, all of this stuff. Um, I like walked in. This is like the one thing I will say that I called. Like I walked into the writer's room on the first day and I was like, I don't know who this actor is, but like he is a baby movie star. And I fully believe that about Joe Keery. I think he is a baby movie star. I think he's unbelievable. Um, and so I love doing anything with him. Um, I would shot a short film like not too long ago that I cast him in. And like a small role just because he's an amazing actor and he's a great guy and he can sell anything. And that's the funny thing about the people who are really good on the show um, that you know that you can count on. You, they often get like these big exposition dumps, these big like like suspend your disbelief for a moment scenes because 
they can sell it because they can sell anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I love Steve. Uh, I also have a really soft spot for Max um, and for Robin, who both are like, you know, somewhat what I was like as a kid and still am, I guess, to some extent. Um, so, and I like, <laughs> I, uh, I like Erica a lot, even though she's like basically a cartoon character, but I just love <laughs> that she's like this little, you know, like objectivist, <laughs> like, like, I don't know, capitalist monster, um, <laughs> who's like super insightful and blunt and, uh, yeah, I, she she really cracks me up. So I guess I guess that's kind of those are my guys. But really, it's I just really love Steve. You called Steve a baby movie star. What did you mean by that? He's like a movie star that like you don't know. He's nobody knows he's a movie star yet. Like he's like like Tom Cruise and like what I don't know whatever. Uh, what was his first dem movie? It was like before um, Cocktail. Was Cocktail his first one? I was going to say Cocktail, but what about that movie where he was the elf uh, legend? Was that before Cocktail? Let's IMDb it right now. Yeah, let's find out. Let's see. Actor. Let's go all the way down. He was in Endless Love as Billy. That was his first thing? That looks like, I don't know. But was Legend before Cocktail? That's the real question. Oh, yeah, true. Let's check that out. Okay. Cocktail came out in 88. Oh, but Top Gun came out in 86. But then Legend came out in 85. Yes. Yeah, but Risky Business came out in 83. No. Risky Business, though. Risky Business. Risky Business, Tom Cruise is, to me, like Joe Carey and Stranger Things. Like, I think he has so much charisma. I think that he has so... And he, like, he doesn't get to do a lot of it in the show, at least in these previous seasons, but... He has a ton of depth. He has a huge range. Like, I I don't know. I don't know why he's not the most, like, highest in demand actor out there right now. I can't wait to shoot a feature so that I can have him make me look good. So, I think writing good, believable dialogue is one of the most difficult things to do well. Do you ever find it challenging to write dialogue that's based in the 80s? Um, I find that it is good not to overthink it. Um, I spend time like researching lingo, um, when I write different eras. Like, so I've written like the spectrum of scripts I've written the last few years is like, I wrote one that takes place in 1666. I wrote one that takes place in 1968 and I've written on Stranger Things. And so I'll do a lot of research and read a lot of like, transcripts and you know like literature from that time but at a certain point I think it's important to just try to understand your character and not get caught up in like authenticity of you know like obviously you don't want to like be loaded down with anachronisms but like I mean it's important to remember like kind of like we were talking about earlier like teenagers are the same you know like they care about like sex and booze and like hanging out and like defying authority. And um, I think you can get really like confused and like lose a lot of time and like momentum in writing if you are like agonizing about the diction. Um, but that's usually like, so usually you go back like after like a ser- second or third draft and then you really start to like work the dialogue really hard. Uh, to, you know, kind of get all of that through. Um, Make sure that it sounds right, as right as it can, you know. And then at a certain point, you just have to trust the actors to sell it, Mm -hmm. which they, you know, usually do. Like, I've definitely written stuff where I'm like, ooh, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about this one. But a great actor, you know, can get, get get you further than you, than you think. Do you have any favorite episodes that you've worked on? Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, my, I mean, my episodes are my favorite. Episode four of season three, um, the sauna test. I love. I think it's awesome. Um, I did episode six of season two, uh, the spy, which I think is awesome. 
Um, and uh, season one, I wasn't on, but I think I liked season, or I liked episode five the best in that. Um, but, you know, I like... I'm more than episodes because we all we break the whole season as kind of as a whole. We break it like a movie. It's not like Law and Order or something where it's like really episodic and you're kind of resetting every day. Mm-hmm. It's just one big story told over eight or nine episodes. Um, it's not so much episodes that I am attached to, but like moments in episodes. Um, so like in season three, like I love the moment when. Um, like Eleven is trapped in Billy's mind in episode six and she thinks she's in the cabin and then he comes out and starts talking to her, which was something that we kind of ripped off from The Cell, um, the movie The Cell, which is another like underrated, mm-hmm. um, awesome 90s movie. But um, it's uh, like I just like I loved writing it, but then seeing it performed, I like it, it'll always be one of my favorites. I think it's so unnerving and I think that, Dacre Montgomery does such an amazing job and it's that spooky thing like if you've ever realized you're in a nightmare while you're in a nightmare it's like it's a very upsetting feeling and um right yeah I just yeah I have moments I guess more than episodes you know that's really cool what you you just said was that it's cool seeing it come to life yeah you know so it's one thing to be on the page, but then to see these characters play out this scene. Yeah, well, it's it's so fun and gratifying to be in screenwriting because, you know, there is a certain lack of autonomy because you don't, your script is just a piece of a machine. It's not the final thing. Um, but it's so exciting to be part of something that is like alive and that like changes with every hand that touches it. Um, and I think like the most disheartening thing about like screenwriting is that you can work for so long without having that, like that collaborative energy that like really like makes something, you know, real. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's so, you know, it's so fun to be on a show, um, whenever like morale gets down in the room, the Duffer brothers, you know, will like come show us like clips of. Um, scenes they've already shot and like edited together or even like they'll show us like um, concept art for like a monster or they'll show us like you know um, pictures of the mall when they were like scouting the mall and it's just like these like tangible goalposts like keep you um, like slaving away because it's so exciting to know that um, it's going to become real you know like Mm -hmm. the thing that you're thinking in your head like people are gonna like be quoting it and um it's it's just it's very exciting so this season three i i grew up in the mall here in alaska diamond center (laughs) diamond center (laughs) (laughs) did you have any um moments maybe looking at the sam goody sign (laughs) where you're like oh my gosh this like really takes me back yeah, dude, of course. Mall culture. Um, yeah, we I mean all of us in the room like talked about like being a mall rat and lurking around the mall and you know, like eating whatever Auntie M's pretzels. <laughs> you know, just like being disgusting and living in the mall like for some reason that was like the coolest, most best fun thing you could do with your day. I don't know if mall culture exists anymore, do you? No, no, definitely not. I mean, not, I don't know, I'm not a teenager, but as far as I can tell, it doesn't. Although, I don't know if you saw eighth grade, they go to a mall in eighth grade, so maybe people still do. There's that scene, if I'm if I'm remembering it correctly, in season three of Stranger Things, where they walk into the mall and it's just like... Everybody is there. This moment of glory. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I don't, I mean, I think it's definitely not like that anymore. I, I mean, everybody knows that, right? Like Amazon has dismantled the mall for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that maybe I just have a, 
an aversion to malls now where I, I feel just like gross when I'm in them. Yeah. What? They're disgusting. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, malls are horrible. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> yeah, no. Amazon had it right. Like, don't go to the mall. <laughs> Stay home and order stuff. Yeah, exactly. So do you have any stories maybe from the writer's room or the set that really stick out in your mind? Um. Well, I can tell you a story. I don't know if people already know this story, but um, I uh, I went to set. So I didn't go to set last season because I was pregnant and then like having a baby. Um, but I went to set on season two um, for like a week, maybe. Um, shadow the duffers because I want to direct, and I you know it's really helpful to watch other people direct. So I flew down to Atlanta. And I was crashing at my friend's house and it was my first season on the show. So I was like really nervous, like all the time, like every day, <laughs> like <laughs> I was really, really sweaty. And I came off as like really mean because I was just like so nervous. Um, and I was so nervous. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a cold sore on your lip, but like, it's a stress thing. And if you're really stressed out, sometimes like you'll get a cold sore. So I was so stressed out. I got like four cold sores <laughs> Okay. <laughs> on my lips. And so, but I was like on set and I had to go to set. So like in order to try to cover it, I wore like a ton of like really dark purple lipstick, which <laughs> like I've never worn lipstick. Like it looks so fucking crazy. Um, and like you could still see the cold sores. So I just like some like horribly like ill streetwalker <laughs> and I but like I didn't know I don't know I didn't know what else to do so I was on set and I was like talking to the actors I was hanging out with David Harbour who's like amazing like guy he's really wonderful Sean Astin who's a saint um and uh I remember it was the last day I was gonna be there it was Sean Astin's last day on set and it was the day that he gets murdered by a demo, like a Demogorgon dog, like a demo dog, um, in season two. And, um, it was like three in the morning and they were doing like night shoots or splits or something. It's like three in the morning. And, um, somebody was supposed to have gotten like a stunt girl to like be the thing that attacks Sean Astin. And then like they paint over it like digitally, with, um, what, I, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. VFX. Um, and the stunt girl that nobody got a stunt girl. So everybody was freaking out. And, um, I was just standing there and I was like, well, I'll do it. Like if you guys just need a person, like I'll do it. And I remember the VFX guy whose name was Paul came up to me and he like grabbed my arms, like the, you remember in like Hansel and Gretel, like the witch who, who's like checking their arms to see how fat they are. <laughs> he was like stroking my arms and like feeling my bones and like staring at them. And then he looked at the Duffer brothers and he was like, they're perfect. Can I have them? And he's like German. So he had this weird accent. And the Duffer brothers were like, I don't know if you can have her arms, dude. Like ask her. And I was like, yes, like you can have my arms. So, um... I got like, they put all these dots, these like motion capture dots on me. And um, for the scene where Bob gets like murdered by a Demogorgon, that's me. I like attacked him with my little lady hands and my like purple whore lipstick. <laughs> and I like pretended like I was eating him alive. And it was great because his whole family, because it was his last day shooting, his whole family was on set. So his wife was there and his daughters who were like, adorable like 10 and 13 or something and um and Sean Astin like helped me I don't know do this weird stunt double acting because he had done so much stuff with Lord of the Rings so he like knew what to what I should do um but it was like the cool <laughs> it was like the coolest thing uh it's like the coolest thing ever it was the most Hollywood moment of my whole life um so somewhere on the internet you can find like behind the scene pictures of me looking insane uh attacking sean astin in that scene man that's that's really great did you feel like that was kind of a rite of passage because you said you showed up 
and you were kind of uncomfortable, did you feel a little bit more relaxed after that? No, I'm never relaxed. No. Um, No, but I was really excited. But I'm like, even though I'm like nervous, um, I still like force my way into situations that I want. I still manage to get what I want, even though I'm like really uncomfortable about it. And so I kind of feel like that's why that happened because I was like, well, I'm going to make my mark here. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. That's great. Yeah, it was a high. So moving on to the next question. Um, I think we're in the middle of a nostalgia culture where television, film, music, and fashion are including a lot of throwback elements and themes. Do you think that maybe that's a symptom of a longing for a bygone era or is it playing to a generation that grew up with that pop culture by giving them something familiar that they already have emotions attached to? I think those are kind of the same thing, aren't they? This generation is longing for a bygone era that we perceive as being like a better or simpler time, but it's not really. It's just the time when we were young and we didn't understand or have the responsibilities that we do now, but it's not like the 80s were fucking great, you know? Mm -hmm. Just like in the 80s, when, you know, Stand By Me was made, uh, and it's about nostalgia for the 50s, the 50s weren't fucking great either. But you're young, and you don't know that when you're young. So you hearken back for a time of innocence that doesn't exist in society. It only existed in you. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I think it is like I don't think the 80s were like a better simpler time I just think that the 18 to 30 year old demographic that everyone is catering to was young then and didn't understand that shit was fucked up for sure (laughs) so we look back on it and be like oh yeah remember when it was all like high-waisted jeans and you know fun jams (laughs) but really it was like Chernobyl and fucking you know Everything else. I don't know. I just watched Chernobyl, so I'm just obsessed with it right now. That's just what humans do, I think, is we romanticize times when we're younger. You know, um, you see it with the 60s. You know, if you've ever watched, I think it's a PBS special that they they do. It's called the 60s, and then they do one called the 70s. But if you watch the 60s one, the 60s were pretty fucked. Yeah. No, have you read Slouching Towards Bethlehem? That's so weird that you brought that up. I'm actually reading it right now. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. That's the fucking 60s, man. Yeah, Joan Didion. She's She is a phenomenal writer. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, But yeah, when people try to romanticize the hippie generation and then you read Slouching Toward Bethlehem, you're just like, wait, they were all a bunch of drug addicts. Yeah, no, it was fucked up. <laughs> it was fucked up. So I want to switch gears here a little bit to talk about your short horror film, How to Be Alone. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who haven't seen it, and please correct me if if I get this wrong, uh, but I know it's on YouTube and it focuses on a young woman kind of fighting with and then overcoming her deepest fears. What made you want to make this video? Um, Yeah, so that's an autobiographical video. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) That is uh, why I wanted to make it. I like... um, I have like uh, my fair share of maybe more than my fair share of neuroses and um, and anxieties. And uh, I wanted to, it was kind of an experiment to try to depict it like as honestly as I possibly could and put it out in the world and see if anyone else took the bait. Um, what do you mean by took the bait? I mean like to, as kind of like a, smoke signal to say like I don't know if you feel like this but I feel like this and if you feel like this too you are not alone and Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you can't do great things or that you're not a great person it just means that you have uh, an active imagination and a fast heartbeat but that's okay and um, I find uh, a lot of solace in solidarity in, um, you know, finding like your people. And so it's, it was really, it was really fun to make, um, that short and, uh, see people respond to it because 
I, you know, I did have a lot of very intense uh, responses to it, which was really exciting for me. You know, I, I feel like that's definitely like an artist mentality. Like, okay, here's something that really scares the shit out of me. Now I need to share it with the world. Yeah. And like, you know, it's a happy ending. Like, even though I wouldn't say it's necessarily about someone overcoming their fears, but instead kind of learning to cohabitate with them. I guess you kind of alluded to this a little earlier, but did you find it therapeutic? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that act of writing a, um, a, like a short like that, you know, forces you to examine your fears and the way that you deal with them in a really honest way, because, um, you don't want your character to feel bullshitty. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to confront yourself and, um, kind of unflinchingly in order to get, get away with the story. So, yeah, it's, um, it was, you know, it was very much the like narcissistic deep dive. Um, I didn't know yet, but I was pregnant when I was writing it. So I had a bunch of pregnancy anxiety that was like subconsciously <laughs> brewing, um, which came out in the writing. And then I shot it while I was pregnant. And then, um, what, by the time it was released at South by Southwest, I had my baby. So it was kind of, it was like an interesting journey in that way, you know, trying to write a film that is a short that's specifically about female anxiety, um, relationships, codependence, um, pregnancy, identity, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting to like go through the process of the short while going through the process of having a baby. It was very, you know, it was really uh, meta. <laughs> so you've done a lot of really cool stuff in your career so far. Thank you. What kind of stuff can we expect from you in the future? Yes. So I am going to stay with Stranger Things uh, until we're done with that show. But um, in between seasons, um, this next summer, uh, I plan to direct a feature film. Uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, so that's kind of like my next big project. Uh, I have a couple of different feature projects that I want to write and direct. But um, I had so much fun directing How to Be Alone um, that I can't wait to do a feature. It was Directing is so much more fun than writing. <laughs> um, so that's kind of where I'm at uh, in my career is – I love working on Stranger Things. I love the show, but I'm also excited to like start doing my own thing. You know, writing's hard. Oh my God, it's the worst. <laughs> Do you find, <laughs> or are you kind of longing to be in the director chair so you don't have to trudge through the writing process? Well, kind of, but also like I can't imagine directing anything I didn't write. So the ultimate is writing your thing and then directing your thing. Mm -hmm. um, because getting to see um, an idea go like through the entire process uh, and having like as much control as you do as a director is like the most, oh God, like what's the word? Like satisfying, like bonerific, <laughs> like, <laughs> like invincible, awesome feeling, I think of all time mm -hmm. aside from like giving birth to a human like these things are close like the so this is like a deep cut that will be boring for anyone who hasn't seen how to be alone but there's like this one shot in how to be alone where um this gimp is crawling out of a cupboard and his fingers like part the cupboard um these like black latex fingers and i remember having the idea in my mind and writing it down and then sitting down with the cameraman, uh, the DP and Caleb Heyman and telling him what it should look like. And then sitting down with art department and telling them how it should look. And then I remember being on set and this, uh, art assistant was this tiny little girl was inside the cupboard, this little four foot girl 
wearing those latex gloves and she was doing the move and I was watching it on the monitor and it was exactly what I wanted. It was exactly, it was literally like seeing a dream come true. It was like being God. You were like, first I see, like see it in my mind and then I see it in real life. And there's like no feeling like that. It is so intoxicating. So like that alone in conjunction with it's so much more fun. You're working with other people. You know, you're part of a team. Like, you know, directing is is really where it's at as far as I'm concerned. And I imagine you can just keep going and keep challenging yourself to as far as what's in your mind. Like, can I actually do this? Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> it's something that I learned at for years and years of therapy. But um, my therapist used to always say, if it's not scary, you're not doing it right. Um, which is how I try to like approach my career, which is like, you should always be a little bit scared. You should always be like a little bit uncomfortable. That's great. Yeah. Thanks. So taking this all the way back to when you were a kid in Anchorage and you were focused on leaving a legacy, do you feel like you're on the right track right now? Um, I do, but I think, you know, this is like not going to square with everything else that we've been talking about. But I also think that like having a baby has also shifted my perspective about what's important and what's meaningful and what it, what it means to leave a legacy. Um, Cause I do want to like share all these weird feelings and connect with people about weird feelings, which is kind of like my mantra, but also like I want to um, communicate with my kid about weird feelings and let them know that they're not alone and that they uh, can grow up in a place where they can, connect with people. That's great too. Two great things in a row. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, Awesome. This has been awesome. I mean, if you have anything else you'd like to add, I think that does it for my questions. No, I'm good. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kate. This has been a blast. Oh, same. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.